0: Greetings, brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray you experience the, the love and joy of the Lord as we gather for worship this day. We'll be looking at Luke 13, or Luke 10, rather, verses 13 through 20. And the message title is The Tragedy of Missing the Point. Let us hear the Word of God. If you follow along in your Bibles, reading from the New International Version, Luke 10, starting at verse 13. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven and have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for Jesus, for his authority over sin, death, and the grave, even uh, sickness and the devil himself. And Lord, we do pray that you would teach us what is most important, that this woe might not be our experience, but that we would experience the joy of salvation and fullness in Christ. Father, minister to us May your Holy Spirit meet us here and open your word to us that our minds, hearts, and lives will be truly transformed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, now we come to the second woe oracle in Luke's gospel. The first was way back in Luke chapter 6, the Beatitudes. But here in our lesson in Luke chapter 10, we read in verse 13, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Now Chorazin and Bethsaida are cities near Capernaum where Jesus spent considerable time. The message to them is God's Messiah worked miraculously there, time and again, and yet they have not responded to God's Messiah in repentance and faith. And Jesus underscores their pathetic lack of faith by citing two heathen cities who, in contrast, would have jumped at the invitation to God's salvation, given a similar opportunity that these two cities have, frankly, ignored. So, what's wrong with Tyre and Sidon? You may remember the oracle against Tyre in Isaiah 23 we studied back in March. But you could also turn to Jeremiah or Ezekiel, Joel, Amos. The Old Testament prophets are littered with condemnation for Tyre and Sidon. But in short, Tyre was a seaport city, a strategic gateway to global commerce, attracting merchants, wealth, opportunities for good, as well as all the corruption and carousing that accompany such settings. And what Tyre lacked in military strength, She made up using money, power, ego, and pleasure to seduce even the most devout. Make no mistake, being such a dominant commercial center, Tyre wielded very real power. They don't call it the almighty dollar for nothing. Tyre's condemnation should cause us all to take note. Jesus uses these notorious Gentile cities to condemn the complacent listening to him at the time, saying in effect... Their indifference to God's Messiah is far worse than all the sins of Tyre and Sidon. And had these hotbeds of hedonism seen the miraculous signs Jesus performed, they would have not only repented and believed, they would have taken time off work and put on scratchy sackcloth and tossed dust and ashes on themselves as a sign of remorse and their change of heart. And yet God's chosen people have no shame. And see no need to repent. I mean, oh sure, they're impressed by the miraculous healings, the exorcism of demons, but they feel no need to examine themselves, repent of their sin, or change their ways. Much less follow Christ. Now Jesus mentioned Sidon earlier in Luke's gospel to make a similar point, and his words would not only have been insulting. But would have made his Jewish audience furious, especially since his words were so true and undeniable. Let me just read verse Luke four, verse twenty-five and six. Jesus says, But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman Who was a widow. Now it was talk like that which led many to see Jesus as dangerous. But Jesus doesn't let up. Rather, he rubs their noses in it in verse 14. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Now there's one more woe to the crown jewel, verse 15. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Capernaum was a lovely city on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus cast out demons there. He healed many sick people, including Peter's mother in law, and actually adopted Capernaum as the base of his earthly ministry. I find it tragically ironic that the place where Jesus invested most of his time and performed so many of his miracles is emphatically told that heaven is not her destiny but rather Hades. Hades is the realm of the dead. That is the opposite of heaven. It's also called the depths, the place of punishment for sinners who refuse the mercy of God's Messiah. You know, Jesus has just sent these 72 disciples to prepare people to respond in faith when Messiah Jesus came to their town. Jesus pronounces woe on these three cities to emphasize how important is the word they preach and how essential it is that people respond with repentant faith. He says in verse 16, The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. You know, Jesus begins with their authority to speak on his behalf, and those with ears to hear find new life in Christ. His focus, however, is on those who reject either these messengers or the message they bring. But either way, they are in rejecting these witnesses, rejecting Jesus who sent them, and in fact, rejecting Almighty God who sent Jesus as the world's only Savior. Okay, verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They returned with joy and amazement, that all that they had seen Jesus do, they were able to do now on this mission. And these 72 rightly note that they do not have this authority to heal and cast out demons, but rather in Jesus' name do they see these miracles occur. And how marvelous must it have been to be one of those persons visited by these disciples, to experience such miraculous healing, to see a long, vexing demon cast out, or even to see a dead person raised back to life. Someone mentioned on the survey that Jesus healed lepers and people with all kinds of sickness, and then they said, I'm confused. What do we need to do? Now, I understand their question to be, is such healing power available to us in this pandemic? And certainly Jesus has all authority. He is able to heal now as he did then. He gave that authority to these 72 disciples who did just that with great success. And so if I follow the reasoning, shouldn't we, as disciples of Jesus, in this pandemic, claiming his healing power and just gather for worship as we did before, trust his protection and claim his healing if anyone does get sick? This is the classic question that we see even in scripture. And just one example in John's gospel, after Jesus fed the 5,000, we read that they followed him to the other side of the lake, caught up with him the next morning, expecting him to now serve them all breakfast. In John 6, 26, Jesus answered them, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, "'you're seeking me not because you saw signs, "'but because you ate your fill of the loaves. "'Do not work for the food that perishes.'" But for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And this, brothers and sisters, is a recurring emphasis in John's gospel. Again and again in Jesus' ministry, so many in the crowd simply see the miracles as the point. Jesus heals the sick, he casts out demons, he raises the dead, he feeds us fish and chips. They believe the miracles. They may even believe Jesus is sent by God, but only see Jesus' miracle-working power as something to benefit them, to make life comfortable, normal. And what Jesus emphasizes to them again and again is that Jesus' miracles are actually signs, signs pointing to the fact that he has authority over sickness, over nature, over demons, even death itself. Jesus' miracles are signs that are to open our eyes to who Jesus is. This is God in the flesh. What the crowds fail to realize is Jesus is God's Messiah, who has come to save us from our sins and awaken us to the reality that this world, this fallen, broken world, is not going to endure. Jesus came to invite us into his kingdom, which is not ushered in by any political party or any human operation, no matter how sophisticated, no matter how pious. Jesus invites us into his kingdom that operates on a whole other value system and a very different set of priorities that is not of this world, but transcends this world. When we are converted not only to trust Jesus as Savior and Lord, but when we are converted from centering our lives on this physical world to instead center our lives in God's eternal kingdom, which is not of this world, God gives us a new perspective that we bring with us as we live in this fallen world. It's kind of like when I play checkers with my grandson. I have one who's six and another who's eight. And in my old sin nature, I could play to win and ruthlessly demoralize a little guy. I must confess, frankly, that I see that window of superiority rapidly closing. Or I could play in such a way that helps him be a better checker player, learn some strategy, rethink some of his knee-jerk moves to consider a better move. And as a grandpa, I don't play for my benefit, but for his. And likewise, as a disciple of Christ, living for the kingdom of God, I don't live this life for self. Since Jesus said the first thing in following him is to die to self. My life is now hidden with Christ and God, Colossians 3 3. So I may lose a power struggle with someone, but I endeavor to be led by the Holy Spirit and live out God's values rather than protect my ego. And win at all costs. Now, there are plenty of people who would call that just plain stupid, but I don't answer to them. I answer to God. I live for Him, and He has done so much for me, I willingly sacrifice even my rights in submission to His will and His way. Now, Jesus authorized these 72 disciples to go on out ahead of Him to heal to cast out demons, even raise the dead, in order to make clear the kingdom of God has drawn near. God's Messiah is just up the road and he's on his way. People needed to make up their mind whether to receive him or not. You know, in our day there are some churches, some pastors, some Christians who will tell you this authority to heal is still at our disposal as followers of Christ. Now, I do not doubt for a nanosecond Jesus' power to heal. I know he can. I know he does. I've seen it, experienced it, and I marvel at his power and his mercy. But I distinguish my faith from these others in that the power and authority is not in me, but belongs to Christ. These 72 disciples healed in Jesus' name according to his will and purpose. The purpose of these miracles were to serve as signs announcing Messiah's coming, revealing the inbreaking of the kingdom of God to reverse the curse of sin and its consequences. It's it's really a preview of what heaven is like. Now, understand if the purpose of the miracles is to make this life better, well, I'd leave this afternoon for Florida to pray for those COVID-19 patients in overcrowded hospitals to clear beds. But then I ask, why stop there? Why not pray for the miraculous healing of all the other patients in the hospital and then go on to the next hospital? Don't get me wrong. I pray for healing. I trust God is able. But I trust his will, his timing, his purpose. And to presume I can dictate who and when God will heal is not what God has called me to do. That was not the point of his miracles. Not when he performed them or when these 72 performed them or even the apostles in the early church. The miracles were always signs that God's Messiah is at work to draw people to repentance and faith in him and lead them to eternal salvation. It's not just about momentary relief. And likewise, to presume I can ignore legitimate safety measures and just trust God, maybe putting God to the test. I can't condone that either. Now when Jesus returns, the kingdom comes in fullness, there will be no tears or sickness or death. Jesus' miracles give us a preview of what's to come. We're not there yet. Let's look again at verse 17. The seventy-two returned with joy, saying, "Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name." The fact that the first word out of their mouths is "Lord" shows they recognize his authority. In this case, "Lord" is not simply a word like "sir," but rather shows they see he commands respect, honor, and perhaps even recognize his divine authority. I mean, can you imagine what these disciples have just experienced? Day after day, they encountered the blind, the lame, all kinds of sickness. In Jesus' name, all were healed. They even raised the dead. And when they were confronted by a demon-possessed person seething with hostility, in the name of Jesus, they cast the demon out and away. They all recognized it wasn't power from within them, but the power of Jesus that he bestowed on them to carry out his work as a sign to these towns that God is redeeming his fallen creation. The message is turn from your sin, come to Jesus and find forgiveness, true healing, not only physically, but spiritually, emotionally, in all ways, and follow him in the way of true life. Okay, verse 18, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The Jewish rabbis anticipated that when Messiah came, he would bring Satan's rule to an end. We also see this in the New Testament. Revelation 12 talks about a war in heaven against the dragon and his angels. Verse 8, but the dragon was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. This mission of these 72 disciples is decisive in bringing to an end Satan's rule. You know, we we may think of the cross or when Jesus returns as a time when Satan is defeated. But that defeat has already decisively begun. I mean, this is like D-Day, the Normandy invasion. You know, once the Allied troops gained a foothold in France, it was just a matter of time to secure complete defeat of their enemy. Isaiah 14.12 comes to mind. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. Now there is more beyond the fall of the enemy. There is a clean up mission as Jesus refers to in verse 19. He says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Now this authority, these 72 have been given, extends throughout their mission. The serpents and scorpions represent hostile forces, whether literal pests, sickness, or the enemy's power. You remember the Apostle Paul, commissioned to a similar mission to take the gospel to the Gentiles, was healed from the bite of a poisonous snake in Malta. The point again is not that we become snake handlers, but that such hostile forces and what they represent can be overcome and crushed. In fact, we can trace the illusion all the way back to Genesis 3.15 where immediately after the fall of Adam and Eve is this prophetic word that the curse of sin and that the saving serpent, Satan, who's behind it all, will be destroyed, saying the offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Now this last phrase in Luke ten nineteen is emphatic. Nothing shall hurt you. The disciples are secure in God's hands. Verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus here makes the point I made earlier that such authority over sickness, demons, even death itself, I mean, it's invigorating, something we can all get excited about. But the point of it all The greater joy is their names are written in heaven. And if that's a bit of a letdown to you, I appeal to you to consider again what it means to be converted, not only to faith in Christ, but also to be converted from living for this world to living for the kingdom of God. I mean, this was an empowering as well as a comforting word to these disciples knowing the evil one's power could not remove their secure position before God. They each faced resistance, persecution, even martyrdom with courage and faith, knowing this world is not the goal, and truly the best is yet to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word of truth. We thank you for Christ and his authority, and pray, Lord, that... uh, He will work in each one of our hearts and minds and lives that we will see clearly Uh, the greatest joys, that our names are written in heaven. And Lord, that we will carry your kingdom values with us each day and bring them to bear as we live in this fallen world where so many simply don't get it. But Lord, help us to be that light that shines your truth, your love, your purpose each day and points others to the Savior for truly that's why we're here and that's why he came. Be glorified in your church, we pray. Help us all to be uh, a witness and a clear testimony to the world that points them to Jesus. And may the harvest be plentiful. We pray in Jesus' name. Let the people of God say, amen. And I give you this benediction. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands.